0: So this is the second in two parts on the subject of communion or the Lord's Supper. Uh, It's called the Lord's Supper because uh, that is what the early church referred to it as. It was actually a supper, it was a meal. Uh, It was what the Lord himself did with his disciples when he gathered together to celebrate the last Passover. It's also called communion from both a Latin and an English word that means to come together and to share something. And so both of those terms are appropriate. It's even called in some context the Eucharist, which is a word that means to give thanks. But for our purposes this morning, what I'd like to do is um, go back and take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, please open them and turn there. And I'm going to just review, because it was a month ago that we did part one. And I know that for many of you that message was filled with truths that you maybe hadn't considered before. In fact, based on the feedback that I received, uh, I could tell that for many of you, this was information that you hadn't heard before or really considered, and, and I hope helped to correct maybe some of your misunderstandings surrounding communion, and, and especially this notion of uh, what preparation is, is needed or, or involved and what the risks might be. Uh, given that I'm used to not getting really any feedback at all, for the most part. I was kind of overwhelmed by the amount of response that I got from that um, and and encouraged, really, just to, to hear your stories. Um, several of you shared with me what it was like for you to grow up in certain denominations or in certain types of churches. Um, it's amazing how this blessed celebration has actually been turned against people. Um, what is supposed to be communion and unifying has become incredibly divisive something that is meant to be filled with joy has become an event that people fear and really try to avoid sometimes something that was meant to declare for you over and over again the finished work of christ once and for all is turned in some context into something that is actually there to make you doubt your salvation so the responses don't really surprise me, and and I'm grateful to hear that there's some better understanding of this subject. But as we go back into 1 Corinthians 11 now, I'm going to read the text to you, and I'm going to just essentially insert all of the conclusions that we arrived at a month ago. And if you would like to go back and maybe listen to that message, you can access it where we go into more depth and detail in the exposition of that text. But for now, just uh, follow along with me as I read. We're going to be in... Verse 17, and we'll take that all the way through until the end of the chapter in verse 34. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, writing to the Corinthian believers, says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you. Paul had been commending them in other ways, and in this particular situation he does not. Because when you come together... It's an important word. You'll see it over and over again in this section when you come together. It is not for the better, but for the worse. It's hard to imagine that it's actually worse that they come together for the Lord's Supper. They would be better off if they didn't celebrate the ordinance. That's how bad things had gotten in Corinth. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. You know, the division is not always a bad thing. There is blessed division. Because with division comes definition, and with definition comes decision. And the church clarifies their doctrine. In fact, most of the great doctrines of the faith have been formulated in the crucible of division and strife and contention and disagreement and disunity. Yeah, we can give thanks to God for division in the church when division exists for the purpose of clarifying what is true and what is not. That's actually a good thing. We're not meant to just hold hands and be unified and ignoring the very things that could separate us, not here in time, but in eternity. So Paul says, it's good. I'm glad that there's division in the church when it's over something like this. Because he says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You think you are, (laughs) but it's not. You're getting together and you're eating and you're having a supper, but it's not the Lord's Supper. It's not the supper he intended you to have. And so he says to them, for in eating... Each one goes ahead with his own meal, and one goes hungry, and the other gets drunk. Obviously, it was quite a meal, wasn't it? I mean, even if one of you came up here and ate everything on the table and drank everything on the table, you would not be full and you would not be drunk. You would especially not be drunk because Mr. Welch has gave us what's in those little cups. This was a meal. There was lots of food. And remember, the rich people would come and they'd arrive early and they'd bring all kinds of food and all kinds of wine. And because they didn't have to work like many of the slaves did, they could arrive and they could feed their faces and drink their fill. And by the time the poor people arrived, the place was just a mess. Drunken, gluttonous, so-called Christians, neglecting the poor for whom this meal was meant to bless. And so he says in verse 22, what? Or literally, no. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Nothing wrong with eating and drinking, but do it in your own house. This isn't what we're here to do. Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I'm not going to commend you for the way that you celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because it's not even the Lord's Supper. Then, verse 23 through 26, he describes what it should be. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance of me. Remember what, what I did, he says. Remember my love for you. Remember my compassion towards you. Remember how I washed the feet of the disciples, even the one who would betray me. Remember how I fed you. Remember how I instructed you. Remember how I was there around the table and there was no lamb because I told you later on that I would be the lamb. Remember how I broke the bread. Remember how I passed around my cup of wine that you might share it with me. Remember how we sang hymns together as we walked to the garden. Remember how I prayed in agony over what I was going to suffer. Remember how I drank the final cup down to the dregs myself and asked none of you to drink any of it. Remember what I did for you. That's the purpose of coming together. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you, drink, or as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to get back to this at the end because that's really the, the conclusion. I'll tell you now what I'm going to tell you in a little bit. The real purpose of this gathering, the real purpose of the the celebration, the purpose of the, the meal was, yes, to remember him, but even more so to proclaim the Lord's death, the once and for all death, the once and for all sacrifice, and you proclaim it until he comes, until he comes back to judge the living and the dead, until he comes back to put an end to all that he started, until he comes back to finally call together all of those whom he has chosen and saved and adopted so that they can feast with him again and eat the bread and drink the wine and enjoy the fellowship of that great supper. But now it goes back to correction mode. He says in verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. If you are Translation has the word profaning in there. That's an addition that the editors put in. I think it confuses the issue. They are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person therefore examine himself then, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There is an examination that goes on. There is a putting to the test. But the test here is not an examination where you go through some morbid introspection to try to identify some sin in your life to see if you're worthy of coming to the table there's a very specific examination you're supposed to do with a very specific context to a very specific people with a very specific answer. And it's all contained here in the chapter. Verse 29 describes it, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. What that refers to there is the body of Christ, not your physical body, without discerning the body of Christ, their brothers and sisters who are there with them, then you eat and drink judgment on yourself. that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. The consequences were severe. I mean, let's not for a moment downplay the severity of the sin that was to be examined and looked for. Some of you are weak, some of you are ill, and some of you have died. Is it true that God would weaken, sicken, and kill some people who are actually Christians on account of the way they treat the other people within the body of Christ? The answer is yes. And that might be hard for some of you to hear and believe, but it's true. But notice here, it is for Christians because he says, verse 31, but if we, are judged, but if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see, the judgment of God against the people in the church certified the fact that they are not unbelievers. Because the judgment of God, the discipline of God, the loving correction of God, the teaching, the fathering of God that we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we went through Hebrews chapter 12 is the very indication that you belong to God. And because of the judgment that came down upon them, because of the discipline, because of the weakness, because of the illness, because of the death, it was actually an indication that he was willing to judge his own church for the way they treated one another in order to also prove that they would not be condemned to hell forever. You see... There's no way that you could be judged and sent to hell if you are not condemned. And he says here that you are not condemned along with the rest of the world, but you are punished by God. So then, verse 33 how do you avoid the judgment and the punishment and the discipline and the weakness and the illness and the death? It's very clear, it's unambiguous. There's no room for debate it settles the issue once and for all. This is not difficult, brothers and sisters. This is not difficult. The answer comes in verses 33 and 34. So then, my brothers, fellow Christians, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. When you come together to have this meal, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Clearly, that doesn't refer to the communion elements in front of us. We don't tell you if you're hungry, take communion at home. We don't say, take a little nibble of bread and some grape juice at home, and then therefore you won't be so inclined to rush forward and take it from others. I mean, this isn't difficult. You don't have to go to seminary and learn Greek to understand the context. He is saying, if you're going to have this meal and you're going to enjoy the food and the wine and the fellowship, Great, but do it before you come. Why before? Because many of them would meet in the evenings when the slaves were able to finally get off work at the end of the day when the sun went down. And this was maybe the only meal they were going to have that day. And so when they gather together, he says, it will be for good and not for evil. So if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, there's that word over and over again come together as a church for communion. It will not be for judgment. It won't be for discipline. It won't be for correction. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Isn't it interesting that of all the things that Paul is going to give instructions about, even later on in the chapter 12 and 13 and 14, when he talks about spiritual gifts and tongues and all the other stuff that was going on, he says, look, I'm going to give some some basic, you know, instructions when I come, but what I really want to go down and deal with and do a deep dive on is this issue of communion. That's what he dedicated almost an entire chapter to. It was so important to him because what was going on in Corinth was such a desecration of that special event. Now, it wasn't only in Corinth where this was happening. In fact, if you look at Jude, that little letter of Jude right before Revelation, in Jude chapter 12, it says that there were people who had wormed their way and weaseled their way into the love feast same terminology. Uh, There's maybe some indication in 2 Peter as well that this was an ongoing problem in the early church. And so now what I'd like to do is back up and just give you some of the historical uh, traditions that surfaced around this issue of the Lord's Supper or Communion. And I'm going to break it down into kind of sections of history. And, And the first one is sort of the apostolic age. We'll go all the way back to the age of the apostles, And when you talk about the apostolic age, you're you're talking about the time when the apostles were still alive. To be an apostle, you had to have known Jesus and seen the risen Lord. Uh, This was somebody who had direct information from the Lord himself. And in that apostolic age, uh, there is clear indication that already the Lord's Supper had begun to be desecrated. But what we do know for sure is that it was celebrated together with this love feast. So let me just establish something in your minds right now. The love feast and the Lord's Supper, as history advances, will become increasingly distinct. The love feast was literally a feast where you gathered together to eat and to enjoy your fellowship. And the Lord's Supper was something that happened either right after or maybe as part of that meal when you commemorated and remembered the Lord's sacrifice. So at the very beginning, they were connected. At the very beginning, they were one. You would gather for a meal, and during that meal, you would have the Lord's Supper. That was the apostolic age. Now, right after that, we'll go into an age we call the the age of the fathers or the patristic age. Uh, You've probably heard of that phrase, right? The church fathers. Um, They're quoted a lot these days. Uh, You may recognize names like Irenaeus or Clement or Origen. Uh, these are the early leaders of the church. The, these are people who were trained up by the disciples and the apostles. Uh, these were men who led the church. They were sort of overseers, sometimes of multiple churches in certain regions. And during that patristic or period of the church fathers around the third century BC or so, uh, A.D. or so, they, they began taking the Lord's Supper and separating it from the love feast— Because that love feast wasn't getting reformed. The the love feast wasn't getting any better. It was still continuing on over and over again in the church. And so they would separate it and they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, not every day like the early church did during the apostolic times, but usually four times a week. They would get together as a church and they would celebrate it on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Wednesday. And what they would do is they would come together not to have the meal so much, uh, but to have just that time of commemoration. And what you need to understand is that during that time, up until around the fourth century or so, uh, there was nothing formal about it. There was nothing uniform about it. And there was nothing contentious about it. Uh, There was nothing formal. There was nothing uniform. Everyone didn't have to do it the same way. And there was nothing contentious. The actual Lord's Supper part of it was agreed upon with all the churches. But what happened was, is as the church began to advance, more and more of these divisions surfaced, and there was more and more desire for clarity of doctrine. And that is good. It is good to have clear doctrine. That is why we have these wonderful confessions of faith. That is why we have catechisms. That's, that's why we have these declarations from sometimes dozens or over a hundred of the most skilled scholars of Scripture coming together to formulate doctrine into very precise teachings. And these were called councils in the early days, and you're probably familiar with several of those. A couple here you might not be so familiar with. One was the council in Laodicea. Remember that church mentioned in uh, Revelation? The church in Laodicea, the church... Uh, That was the lukewarm church. Well, they held a council in 367 AD, and it was during that council that the church decided that they would permanently separate the love feast from the Lord's Supper, and they actually prohibited anyone from performing the Lord's Supper part of it outside of the church. If you were going to have the Lord's Supper, if you were going to take the bread and the wine and remember his death together, by 367 AD, it had to be done within the church. And then, by the Council of Trulon in 692 AD, they outlawed the love feast altogether. Evidently, by almost 700 A.D., it had still been something that the church could not bring under control, and so they said they're going to do away with it completely. You're not even allowed to celebrate it, and all you can do is what is called the Lord's Supper or communion. Now, something I want you to notice here, because it's a common trend in church history, once you separate something, once you make it so that it's distinct from something else, in this case, the Lord's Supper, then it tends to get centralized. It tends to be something you could only do in the church. And from there, it becomes very formal. After it becomes separated, it becomes centralized. When it becomes centralized, it becomes very formal. When it becomes formal, it becomes a ritual. And when it becomes a ritual, it becomes a tradition. And what you had now was something that was very traditional, very ritualistic. It was confined to the church. It had to be done a certain way. And what that does is it often will lead, leads to it being one of two things, and that is either increasingly sentimental or increasingly sacramental. Increasingly sentimental or sacramental. By sentimental, I mean it just becomes one of those traditions in the church that everybody loves and everybody does and nobody knows why. You ever been to churches like that? Why do we do that at this church? Because we've always done it. You ever hear some of the older folks say, well, back in the good old days, our church used to do this, this, or this. Really, is, is that, that, or that anywhere in the Bible? No, but it's what we used to do. It's very sentimental. It makes them feel good. They remember what it was like back in the old days, but it's not anchored to anything biblical. Well, sentimentality is irritating, but it's usually not heretical. Sacramentalism can be. When something becomes so prominent and so important and so controlled by the church It can become sacramental, and what that means is that you are led to believe that somehow through the participation in this rite or in this ritual, that you are given grace. It dispenses grace to you. Maybe it forgives your sins. It makes you right with God. That's why we don't call communion a sacrament in our church. Now, I know some of our Protestant brothers do, and that's fine. I'm not criticizing them, but we choose not to. We choose to use the word ordinance because we don't want to miscommunicate anything to anybody. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, we don't call them sacraments because they don't infuse grace. They are ordinances. They are given to us by God as ways to remember Him or to identify ourselves with Him. Now, it's important to realize that once this... Has occurred. you've moved from something being spiritual to being sacramental. And the next step, which is certainly the case, as we'll see in a moment, is it becomes sacrificial. Sacrificial. The next sort of event in church history would be the schism, the great schism of 1054, when the church, which used to be unified, and by church, I just mean the Christian church. Have you ever heard the, the phrase holy Catholic church? Some of you are thinking, well, Yeah, that's not us. Well, it used to be us because the word Catholic just means universal. Not Roman Catholic, just Catholic means universal. And that's why in the old creeds we talk about the the Holy Catholic Church. That's okay. That's good. It was back then until 1054 when there was this great split. And you had the Western Church and the Eastern Church. And the Eastern Church, those patriarchs, those leaders formed what is now called Eastern Orthodoxy. This is where you get like your Coptic Orthodox or your Greek Orthodox churches, Russian Orthodox. And then on the other side, the Western Church or the Roman Church, which became the Roman Catholic Church. And it was the Roman Catholic Church that elevated this from being something spiritual to being something sacramental to being something sacrificial. This was the key moment When what goes on here at the front of our church on a table is entirely different than what happens at the front of a Roman Catholic church on an altar presided over by a priest. There couldn't be a more radical divergence of opinion than what surrounds the Lord's Supper in that regard. The Western church became more reverent of it, became more superstitious of it. They separated it from the people. It became something elite that only the priest could handle and touch. I mean, there were so many superstitions around the cup and the bread. Uh, This might seem absurd, but they would literally come alongside and catch every crumb of bread that fell from the people while they were taking communion because the priests had said in their official writings that should a mouse come along later on and eat a little piece of that bread that had fallen onto the ground, that mouse would live forever. And you didn't want to have heaven inhabited by mice. All these superstitions surrounding it. And so what happened was the church began to separate communion from the people. And it was no longer time to come together to remember Christ, but a time to come together because to them, it was him being sacrificed again. This is where we get the doctrine of what's called transubstantiation. The false teaching that the bread and the cup literally become the body and blood of Jesus in order that he might be sacrificed again. This became the law of the church in the fourth century at what was called the Lateran, or or, sorry, the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. Thomas Aquinas became the champion of this. And this is why in in the Roman Catholic Liturgy in the Roman Catholic Mass, they say at the end, Ite misa est. Go, it has been sent. And most people are told, well, that's the benediction. That's the way that the priest tells you, you're now dismissed. But in the early teachings of men like Aquinas, he said, no. The reason why the priest says ite misa est is to say to the people that the sacrifice has been sent, the victim has been sent, that Christ has been again crucified for the sins of the people and his body and blood are being sent to heaven. Brothers and sisters, this was something that caused the reformers to pay whatever price it cost them to bring clarity to what really goes on at the Lord's Supper. And if you don't think that this was a a major central purpose for the persecution that so many of them suffered, then I would encourage you to read that little book that J.C. Ryle wrote. I think I used it in the quote this week, in the Weekender, on the five English reformers. Uh, there were 288 people during the reign of Bloody Mary who were burned at the stake. There was an archbishop, there were bishops, there were priests. There were also 55 women and four children. And to a person, the main crime that they had committed was denying what is called the real presence of Christ's body at the Lord's Supper. That's what sent them to the stake. It wasn't their view on the Pope. It wasn't their view on Scripture or on justification, though all those were different than the Roman Catholic Church. What sent them to the stake, what had them burned alive in the front of witnesses, was their refusal to accept this teaching, that the bread and the wine became the body and the blood of Jesus. You see, it became official doctrine at the Council of Trent that was held between 1545 and 1563, and it was 1555 that Bloody Mary came to the throne. Because this doctrine was so important, it was the centerpiece of the Reformed Church. This is what Zwingli and Calvin came together to form, and it was also very important in the Lutheran Church Uh, The difference is the Lutheran church taught that there was something a bit more substantial in the elements, whereas both Zwingli and Calvin saw it purely as spiritual and purely as remembrance. Now, you might say, well, where do we fit in? Because we're not Lutherans uh, and we're not part of uh, the official uh, Reformed church. Uh, We have Reformed doctrine here. Um, but we are not part of that Reformed church that would describe itself that way. And, and that's because, uh, for the most part, we came out of a group of people that arrived here uh, in what was then uh, the colonies of England in the 1630s. And when they arrived and they formed the Massachusetts Bay Colony, that was really the place where three main denominations were born— Most of them were escaping persecution in England. Uh, The Anglican church, though reformed, had forced them to comply, to come under the, the rule of the king, and they rejected that. And so they came over here to what would later become America. But three main denominations came out of that, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, and the Baptists. The Presbyterians were the first group. This is where you get the Puritans from. Uh, They are the ones who believed that uh, in order to keep doctrine pure, they had to separate themselves from the the Church of England, but they were still rather organized. But then there was a man named Roger Williams who uh, was really quite a strange character, uh, quite an eccentric person. They branded him a heretic. They kicked him out of the colonies, and so he had to go and wander through the woods and ended up at a place where he thought God had given him special grace, and so he called it Providence and founded what's called Rhode Island. So now if you go up to Providence, Rhode Island, that's a place where a guy named Roger Williams got started after he was branded a heretic by the Puritans, and there he planted the First Baptist Church in 1638. You can still go there, and it is the First Baptist Church. In uh, 1947, people gathered together to form uh, what was called First Baptist Church of Vista uh, back in our history. That just means they were the first church in this little town of Vista, uh, over there in Rhode Island. It was literally the first Baptist church. But from them came the American Baptist churches and then eventually some other groups of Baptist churches and all the way down through until you get to where we are today. And, and the reason why I bring that up is because you need to understand there's a, there's a historical uh, genealogy, there's a tradition, if you will, that we come from. And I'd like you to know where it's, where it's uh, originated. That's why we're not a, a Presbyterian church. That's why we're not a Methodist church. This is why we still have some loose ties to what would be called Baptist in terms of our tradition. Usually that just means that we're independent. We're not part of a hierarchy like you would have in certain Presbyterian churches. Uh, It also means that the the congregation essentially governs itself and and that we do baptize people as believers, not as infants. That's really the only sense in which we are Baptist. I think it's important to remember as well that it was the colony there that was founded in Providence, Rhode Island that started because they were absolutely obsessed with the notion of the separation of church and state. It was their radical independence that caused them to branch out and form their own group. So this all brings us back to 1 Corinthians. And now as we sort of speed up the tape in reverse, what, what does that mean for us? Well, I've showed you how we arrived where we did, sort of our, our background being definitely out of the Reformation, which was out of the Western Church, which came out of those councils and all the way back to the Fathers and back to the Apostles. But when it comes to the actual meaning and purpose, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll just review this. I told you before that I was going to end here, and so I will. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why are we here? We're here because we are proclaiming the Lord's death. We're celebrating it. Now, I know at this time of year, we are celebrating the Lord's birth, but the Lord's birth was the low point of his, of his time on earth, his incarnation. It was the most humiliating part of his life life. To become a man was certainly not a promotion. What we really celebrate, the real glory, the real purpose of the incarnation, was actually the cross. Because it was on the cross when he was finally able to say, it is finished. That is what led to the resurrection, which led to the ascension. That is why we celebrate it. That's why we remember it. That's why we proclaim it. Because, as you will recall, from not too long ago in our study of the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, we have this glorious conclusion not only to the teaching on his intercession for us, but also on the reason why we would celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it's this, Hebrews seven twenty-five. May this serve as our conclusion. Consequently, he christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to god through him since he always lives to make intercession for them his intercession doesn't come from being re-crucified his intercession is possible because he's already been crucified and he will never again have to make that sacrifice because it was perfect and it is complete. And it is being decreed and pled before the throne of grace continually before God the Father and before your accuser. And if you are in Christ, you can rush to this table, to be reminded of the grace and the forgiveness that pours out over you like a continuous waterfall. Brothers and sisters, it is not about you being made worthy to come here. It is about you coming here because you have been made worthy by the one who loved you so much to come and become one of you and lay down his life for you. Our Father, we thank you for that truth, and I pray that we would even today be once again reminded of it, compelled by it, humbled by it, and overwhelmed by it, that we might be able to encourage one another with it and together sing and proclaim it. May we do so until you return to judge. And we thank you that those whom you judge you will never condemn. In your name we pray, amen.